You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. God, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our hearing, be with us now to sanctify unto us the truths that shall be derived from them. Be with us especially to enlighten our minds by thy Holy Spirit. And by the mighty working of thy power, bring into the way of truth all such as have erred and are deceived. Be pleased also, O Lord, to strengthen such as do stand, and comfort and help the weak-hearted, and raise them up that fall, and finally to beat down Satan under all our feet. All this we humbly ask in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We continue uh, through Matthew, and you will be very relieved to know that I'm not going to be doing a line-by-line exposition of tonight's gospel reading. In fact, we're really going to concentrate on two verses, verses 17 and 18 in chapter 5, and then uh, we'll weave in a little bit of that in Galatians as we move through. But one of the great accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ during his ministry is that he was against the law, that he had come and up and overturned centuries, centuries and centuries of tradition, that he was doing something that was altogether opposed and over and against what the Old Testament taught. And this was the accusation that led Jesus to preach in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, this man eats with sinners and tax collectors. And so, in a very preemptive way, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount says, no, 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 no. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In just those two short passages, Jesus makes very clear two things. One, everything that Jesus says is congruent with the Old Testament. There's no opposition to the Old Testament. I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christians think that there might be. One of the worst things that publishers ever did was to publish just the New Testament by itself. Because if we don't like the Old Testament, we're going to have real problems with Jesus, aren't we? Because what does he quote at length? The Old Testament, and here he says, no, no, no. Everything that I say and everything that I teach is congruent with the prophets of old. And not just that. Everything that Jesus teaches and says is over and against what the Pharisees and scribes are teaching. The disagreement is not Jesus and the Old Testament. The disagreement is the Pharisees and scribes against Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What is the law and the prophets that Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about the Old Testament, the very word of God. 
the word that Jesus himself preaches from. But more specifically, especially as we look at it tonight, what is the law? He's talking about the law of the Old Testament. He's talking about the moral, judicial, and ceremonial law found in the Old Testament. The moral law we're fairly familiar with, the Ten Commandments, uh, honoring your parents, not murdering, uh, basically being a really good neighbor. And then there are the judicial commandments, which we like to just leapfrog over. How many of you would look forward to a Bible study on Leviticus? Probably not. And yet there is the judicial law set forth for the people of Israel in that day and time by God himself. And then finally there's the ceremonial law, the cultic practices of the Jewish people, and I mean that in its literal sense, not in a derogatory sense, but the dictation of what it was that the Israelites were supposed to be doing uh, in their worship, whether that was in the tabernacle or whether that was in the temple. And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish or do away with any of that. But I've actually come to fulfill that. What does that mean for Christians? Does that mean that we're still under the judicial law that all of us here who are wearing cotton polyester or cotton wool blend shirts are under judgment? No, that's not what it means. But the Old Testament law, whether it is the moral law, the judicial law, or even the ceremonial law, all points to Jesus Christ. It all points to him. Even the judicial law. I mean, it seems very strange that the people of Israel will be told by God to avoid certain foods like pork or shellfish. And for the longest time as a Christian believer, I thought, well, Moses was so smart. You know, being conscious of of the hygienic implications of eating such things that could cause real health problems amongst the Israelites. But I've come to believe after reading the Bible that that's actually not why God told them to do that. God told them to do that to make them different. So that their difference would show forth in all the world. It was awkward. Why not have certain foods on certain plates or why not have certain foods together? Because you need to be reminded that you're different, you're mine. And even all of that, even though that law has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, there ought to be a sense in which Christians feel different. We see that earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew preached on last week. There is a difference. And certainly the moral law, which we're going to get into a little bit more uh, later on, of honoring your mother and your father, of having no other God but the Lord God himself, and maybe more obvious, the ceremonial law of that which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple. So on the great feast uh, when the sins of Israel uh, would be atoned for in Yom Kippur, the high priest would place uh, his hand on a goat and would pray all the sins of Israel uh, on the goat and then would tie a little scarlet cord around it and then set it loose uh, into the wilderness to represent that our sins are, are as far as the east is from the west when it comes to how God is reckoning with us. Well, who is our scapegoat? 
Not one that would have to be repeated year after year after year. But once and for all, Jesus Christ upon whom all the sins of the world were laid. He is the great scapegoat, all of the ceremonial law. And that just being one thing points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So for Christians, although we are, no, we are certainly no longer under the law, what that means is that we're no longer under its condemnation. The law is accusatory in its function. When we hear the law read to us, I hope you don't smile. You know, when we say, love God with everything in your your whole life, with your whole being, and love your neighbor as yourself, do you turn to your neighbor and give him a high five? Do you say, got it covered? No, you say, Lord, have mercy. Why? Because as Christians, we are actually given the freedom to be honest to say, I don't honor God with my whole self. I hate my neighbor. The color he painted his shed is obnoxious. I hope he gets hit by a train. We don't revel in it. In fact, we feel the sting of the law even more acutely than ever. The law still has its work upon us, but we're no longer under its condemnation because Jesus, what the law has demanded, Jesus has fulfilled. He's taken on the curse of the law. He has stood between us and the law and taken on the full force of it. And so it's no wonder that Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees and the scribes. These were men who thought that the the life of faith was all about the rules. And the more closely you followed the rules, the more righteous you were. Their righteousness was in their ability to get their acts together. But it's clear in the ministry of Jesus that they lost the forest for the trees. Lauren and the girls and I recently were flying on an airplane together, and we boarded the plane, and there was no missing it. Same, uh, Same row, but on the other side of the aisle, we were getting on, there was a young lady next to the window, and in the seat next to her was a full-grown Labradoodle. And I thought, I guess she bought a seat for the dog. And uh, the people kept boarding, and uh, kind of a big burly guy sat down on the uh, end of the row, and there was still the middle seat with the dog in it. And then all of a sudden, this little teeny tiny waif of a girl got on and stood looking at the dog, and I realized, that's her seat. Where is this dog going to go? The dog, I kid you not, climbed onto the girl's lap in the window seat and he laid with his paws over her uh, like this. And between the dog and the girl and the burly man, this poor little waif, she looked like Tyrannosaurus Rex. She couldn't do anything. She was totally scrunched in. And no one was blinking an eye at it except for one woman who got on the plane. We were flying from New York, and she was about 80 years old. And she just stared at that dog and then finally looked at the girl who was the owner and said, Is that an emotional dog? (laughs) And here's the kicker. The steward is coming through the airplane, and this poor girl in the middle seat, the steward says to her, I'm sorry, ma'am. If you can't put that bag all the way underneath the seat, I'm going to have to have you check it. And I'm thinking, there's a dog in the middle. I 
mean, right there in the airplane, if, if we go down, I hope it's a retriever of some kind because, that, I mean, there's a dog. But the steward, he knew the rules. No rules for the dog. And he was blind to it. He actually wasn't able to see the whole picture of what was going on. And he focused in on the tiniest of things. So to lose actually what his job was, which was the safety of the passengers. I mean, I don't know, maybe the woman's ticket said pooch in arms. Uh, But it just seems crazy to me, but that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And if you have a life that is built in works righteousness, you like Pharisees. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. So this long litany of you have heard it said that Jesus gets into after the passage of fulfilling the law. Everybody can say, you know what? I'm doing pretty well because I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I have divorced, but there was a good reason. I don't have to worry about oaths. Whatever it might be in this list. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've missed the point. In fact, it turns out that we're all murderers, all adulterers. All of us break our oaths. All of us retaliate. All of us hate our enemies. Because the law, as Galatians says, is our prison warden. It's our schoolmaster. But Jesus says the whole point of the law is to get you to a place where you cry out for mercy from Jesus Christ. God's office is at the end of our ropes. When you get to the place where you realize, who will rescue me from this body of death? Is it try harder? No. It's surrender. The law brings you to Jesus Christ. So tonight... Stop striving. Do you find your righteousness, your right standing before God based on your behavior? I mean, it may be that you think, I'm a really good person. Even in spite of what Jesus says. Yeah, I can kind of work around that. I'm I'm generally, you know, I, I read People magazine. I know all about the Kardashians. God grades on a curve. I'm doing okay. But maybe you're the opposite of that. Maybe you say, but I'm too far gone. I feel the weight of this. I, I felt pretty good until I heard this reading tonight, and now I realize I'm a terrible person. I really don't have my act together. And Jesus' word is the same to both. Stop striving. And turn to me, Jack Kerouac has a great little haiku, and one of the lines in it is this, Whatever it is, I quit. And do you know that heaven is full of quitters? People who have laid down their attempts to get right with God and their own strength? 
Indeed, heaven is populated by sinners. And hell is populated by the self-righteous. Heaven is populated by angry, murderers, lusting, adulterers, divorcees, oath-breakers, retaliators, enemy-haters, the imperfect. For those who come to the place and say, that's me. And to understand that our only hope for salvation, the only hope for healing, the only hope for wholeness in our lives is Jesus Christ. When I was uh, newly married, uh, and I think that we may have had a child at this point, which makes this sound like I'm a total idiot, uh, but uh, some friends were in Pauly's Island, and uh, I went down. Uh, I spent a lot of summers there as a child. I know all about it. And uh, the rip currents are really bad. In fact, the week that I was there, uh, four people had died uh, due to the rip currents just in that week. It was, it was pretty rough. And my buddy Tom and I were there, and we were out uh, there. And all of a sudden, we were maybe only 50 yards out from uh, the shore. And Tom said, do you feel that? And, uh, and sure enough, I did. We were stuck in a rip current, but Tom was close enough uh, in where he was able to get out of it. Uh, and if you've ever been stuck, stuck in a rip current, what do they tell you to do? Swim parallel to the shore. All that falls out of your ear when you're in one, by the way. Right? That's how four people die. And so I'm panicking. I'm trying to swim in any direction I can. And my friend Tom is saying to me, do you need help? And I say, no, I've got it. No, I've got it. No, I've got it. And finally, I realized, I'm going to die. And so I yell, help me. And they gathered some people on the beach. They made a human chain, and they were able to pull me in uh, to the shore. Friends, that's the spiritual life. Each and every single one of us are caught in a riptide of sin. And no matter how much we say, I've got it, that's a lie. And where is Jesus? Is Jesus over on the shore saying, swim harder, no, parallel, oh, no, other direction, oh. No, Jesus himself swims straight in the riptide. In order to get to you and to land you safely on the shore at the expense of his own life. Jesus is no swim coach. In life, we need a lifeguard. And so when we hear the accusations of the law, when we feel the pool of the riptide in our lives... I pray that we take Jesus at his word and we simply cry out to him for mercy and pray even the most wonderful short prayer in all the Bible. Lord, save me from the law, from sin, and from death. So tonight, if you're trying to find your righteousness by way of the law, by way of your own behavior, just give up and turn to Jesus and put your trust in him. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.